So let's take another look at the book of Revelation. Now, if you're here for the first time, don't worry, I'll catch you up in about a second. But basically, uh, we're going to spend uh, probably the next 20 weeks or so. Uh, we're not going to break for Christmas. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Revelation into Christmas. Uh, and I'll show you how we're going to do that when we get to Christmas. But the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. It is a book that John wrote to people who basically could not read. And it's, so it's, it's designed to be auditory. It's designed to be heard by an audience or a group of people, read by a lector, someone who is qualified to read in whatever language it may be, and I'm qualified to read in English. And so what we've been doing week by week is you listen and I read. I'll read the, uh, the passage to you. I don't want you to look at your passage in your Bible. I don't want you to look at the passage that's printed in your, in your bulletin. You, we will do that once we've completed the reading and we get into the exegesis of the passage or the explanation of what's going on, okay? So we're going to start today with chapter 7. Last week, we read all of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 8 because those are the six, six seals that were broken in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, or chapter 8, I'm sorry, the very first verse, a seventh seal is broken. Chapter 7 forms what we call an interlude. It's a picture. It's a different picture. And we're going to take a look at that picture in just a moment. It is absolutely fascinating. John was brilliant. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. He's explaining something that is incredibly important to the church. Not just then, but throughout its life and until today. So listen to chapter 7. Hear the Word of God. Again, don't look. Just listen. I've told you maybe you need to close your eyes and just listen. Picture what you see. Um, and and get, a, get a picture of it. And then we'll talk, okay? Now hear God's Word, starting in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now listen to the list. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from Reuben. 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 
12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from Benjamin. And I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one could number. From every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God Himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the Word of the Lord. Wow. Now you may have gotten a little bored with the reading, but once I explain this reading of the twelve tribes, I think it's just going to really amaze you because there's a reason why they're structured this way. Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing an interlude between chapter 6 and chapter 8. In chapter 6, Jesus had taken the scroll, if you remember, from the hand of God who was sitting on the throne. He was the worthy Lamb, the only one worthy to do it. And He takes it and He starts breaking the seals. And as He breaks the seals, an angel or a creature shouts, Come! And He summons these four terrible horsemen. A white horseman that represents Conquest, a red horseman on a, a, a horseman on a red horse representing war, a horseman riding a black horse which represented famine, and a pale horse representing death. And they summon these, and the question immediately comes to us: When did this happen? When is it going to happen? And in America today, a lot of you can get on the internet or watch late night Christian TV or do whatever's crazy, uh, because that's where you find the crazy stuff, I think. You'll find all kinds of ideas about what these horsemen are and what they represent. But there is a school of theological thinking that these four horsemen are going to be released at some point in the future that precedes a seven-year period of tribulation. Have you all heard that? Anyone heard that? Uh, anyone? You want to? 
I mean, pretty much all of us. Okay. That the horsemen are going to be released, and that initiates this period of tribulation. But I want to emphasize that John defines the tribulation. He just did it right now. He uses the definite article in Greek. He says, this is the great tribulation. And he repeats it several times through the, through the book of Revelation. And he says that that period is equal to the time between the two advents of Christ. And so the approach I'm going to take... Now look, you don't have to believe me. You should because I know way more than you. And no, I'm kidding. Joke, 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 joke. I'm, I'm just joking around. Look, I am taking a specific position... And I'm asking you to at least look at it. At least consider it. And if you don't like it, fine. Believe whatever you want. Which generally is what people do anyway, right? But I'm encouraging you to look at it this way. Some of the best scholars in the world look at it this way. In fact, I brought all my books. These, Well, not all of them. I have a, I have a few left. Uh, these are the books I'm using. So you can look at these offers. You can come look, but you can't take. These are not to take. What's going on here is John is witnessing an event, and Gary sent me some great questions this week, and we talked about it. Events that John is seeing then, that are happening then, and some of them are going to happen throughout this period of time, until Jesus comes the second time. You with me? And some of them aren't going to happen until the very, very end of all time. And uh, I'm going to help you kind of think through that. In chapter 6, the chapter we just looked at, John, uh, Jesus opens these four seals and these four horsemen of conquest, of war, of famine, and of death, I believe, and I think John is telling us, were released at that moment into the world and they continue to this day. Everywhere you look, you see wars and rumors of wars. Yes? You hear of earthquakes. You hear of catastrophes. You hear of hurricanes. You hear of tidal waves. You hear of all these different phenomena. You hear of wars and people rising up in troubles in the Middle East and people killing people in churches and in synagogues. And you hear this, it must be the end, it must be the end. Jesus Himself said, do not be deceived. The end is not yet. Many will come in my name. The end is not yet. Wait. Just wait. Be patient. Keep working. Keep trusting. Keep believing. And these four horsemen are released. Then he opens the fifth seal. And what happens? You see the altar of God in heaven and the saints protected under the altar, crying out, How long, O Lord? And he gives them a white robe and he says, Wait a little bit longer. What did he just give them? What did I say he just gave them? A white robe. With me? He clothes them with a white robe, tells them, Wait a minute longer. He opens the sixth seal. And what did we see? The end of the world and the coming of Jesus. Chapter 6. You see the end of the world and 
the coming of Jesus and the consummation of all things right after God promises them wait a little bit longer then you see the end the end comes and then the interlude but your pastor jumped the whole thing and went to the end end because he opens a seventh seal that's chapter 8 verse 1 and what happened then silence 30 minutes silence in other words John is saying everything stands still because something is coming just you wait and see it's anticipatory it's it's a silence of the judgment of something coming the world's been judged and now there's this moment of silence because something is coming and that something that coming that you're going to see comes at the end of the book it's beautiful it's wonderful and then he launches into the rest of chapter 8 which we'll look at next week which are seven trumpets and what I've told you is that these events the way we're looking at it, and the way I think John meant it is that these events lay on top of one another seven seals and then he starts all over again he goes back to the beginning and he starts with seven trumpets so we're going to go back and you'll see the history developing in the middle he does this he gives us an interlude of this interesting scene of 144,000 people getting sealed or marked okay what does it mean well here's how we've been doing it and here's how we're going to continue doing it throughout the series what do you see why do you see it why did John write it what's the purpose for its being there and finally who do you see so now look at your text and if you look at the text chapter 7 the entire chapter 7 it, it's even set off in your in your in your bulletin where we printed it where I had Ella print it I had her print it as it's printed in your Bible it's it's got all of the the uh, markings as if it's as as it as if it was written you see the song the 12,000 and then you'll see the song itself is also set off um, the 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 authors do this because they recognize a song when they see it and they recognize lists and so there it is for you to look at you have an interlude in other words the author is saying now let's move the camera over here and let's look at this let's look at why those souls under the altar get a white robe remember that why do they get that white robe who are these people he is sealing them so you see an interlude the second thing you see is the sealing itself look at verses 1 through 4 it's it's the Greek word is svargas uh, and that word means it's it's a seal or a mark but it's not like the mark of the beast that we're going to see later and, and very interesting you will see how John contrasts the mark that God places on his people listen carefully God marks his people one way the beast marks his people another way and what 
the mark of God results in is peace and salvation and all this beauty you heard me read at the end. He wipes away our tears. There's no more scorching sun. There's all this glorious goodness that comes from that mark. But the mark of the beast takes the people that receive that mark into what? Slavery. Slavery. And they use this two different words. We'll look at it later. The judgment or the mark is so that, listen carefully, so that judgment that you're seeing happening in the book of Revelation, this horrific judgment that is coming right and left, and you just saw some of it in the book of Revelation with these four horsemen, is passing over the people that are marked. The four angels, look at the text, four angels, four corners of the earth are holding back the four winds. In that world, when you have that kind of language, it means judgment is being held back. He's not talking about the actual breeze. He's talking about judgment. The winds and the four corners represented judgment. And that is being held back. And another angel comes and says, don't harm the earth, sea, or trees until, and that word's important, until we've sealed the servants of God. What you're being told, what John is telling his people, is that you can have absolute assurance that God has got you. If you trust Him, and every week at the end of the sermon I say, will you trust Him? And if you say yes, I, I, I want to trust Jesus. And so you do. You pray a prayer, or you come to me and we pray a prayer together, or you do it on your own or whatever, and you say, Lord Jesus, look, I don't understand everything. I don't know everything that's going on here. But I know I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need that seal. I need that seal. Because I don't want to be judged. Will you seal me? And Jesus says yes. He always says yes, by the way. Does He ever say no? Doesn't the Scripture say that anyone that comes to Me, I will what? I will never, in no way, turn them away. Ever. So anybody that calls on Him, He says yes to them. Now, there's nobody that I know that He says no to. The only person I know that, that He should have said no to, that I am absolutely certain, 100%, that he should have said no to is my wife. <laughs> well, you're sitting up here. I thought I would. I'd take advantage of the, the proximity and get you. No, the one person that I know for sure he should have said no to is me. Because I know me, and I'm still amazed. And I think I will be all my life. Why? Why would He choose me? Why? Some good He saw in me somewhere down the line? No. Listen to this. My favorite book, or one of them, Horatius Bonar, Everlasting Righteousness. I've quoted from this book before. He has a whole chapter in this book, by the way, on assurance. Because I will guarantee you that most of us as Christians struggle with assurance. Knowing for sure that God loves us. Yes? I know you don't want to raise your hands to that one, but I know that all of us at some point in our life, we wake up, we've done the bad thing, we've done something bad, 
and we say to ourselves, I wonder if God really loves me. How could he still love me now that I've done that for the hundredth time? Oh, no. The thousandth. Oh, no. The ten. How could he keep loving me? We struggle with assurance. We don't believe we have been sealed. That's the problem. That's what this is all about. These people are really suffering. They're really in doubt. They are being killed for their faith. They're being robbed. Their children are being killed for their faith. They're being tortured. They're losing their businesses. They're losing their lives. They're losing everything. And they need assurance. And John comes and says, here's your assurance. You have been sealed. Listen to what Bonar says. God has given us this gospel not merely for the purpose of securing to the life hereafter, but for making us sure of this life now. It is a true and sure gospel so that we, he who believes, is made sure of being saved. If it could not make us sure, it would make us miserable. If the gospel can't make you sure, it will make you miserable because you will live chronically and forever in doubt of His love. And you will think that your sins define you and not His love. You will think that your sins are what keeps you from Him. Not His love that keeps Him with you. You will let the devil lie to you and tell you that thing is the thing that he cannot excuse. And this entire chapter is here for people who are struggling deeply in the deepest part of their souls with doubt and fear and wondering, does God really love me? Has He truly accepted me? And if so, why? Now there are those of you in this room that I have no doubt that you are pretty sure that God loves you because you are pretty lovable. And heaven would not be heaven without you. And so, of course, He saves you. I mean, look at how good I've been. And I, I, I actually prayed for 15 whole minutes today. Or I, I've been good for a few days. Or I've done, I give my money to the church. Or whatever. Well, you just don't know your sins yet. You haven't seen them. Don't harm the earth. Don't harm the sea. Hold back the judgment until they've been sealed. And if he's only talking about 144,000 Jewish people or Hebrew people over in some of it, which is what some theology teaches, then you're lost. Or if there are 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses and they are the only ones that get to heaven, you're lost. And if it's 144,000 of anything other than 144,000 of you, then we're all lost. He is sealing you and He's sealing me and I can prove it to you because of the numbering of the list. John is absolutely brilliant 
the ceiling, now the numbering, look at 5 through 8, 144, 12 times 12 times 1,000. And then he, he uses a, a, a number that is a great, it's a big number, it's a multiplication. You know if you keep multiplying, what happens? Where does it end up going in arithmetic? Say infinity. It's infinite multiplication. You can always go times one more, right? That's what infinity is. 12 times 12 times 1,000. A great multitude, look at verse 9, a great multitude without number. It comes immediately following this 12 times 12 times 1,000. He's not talking about Israel and then somebody else. He's talking about Israel plus everybody else. Did you hear that? He's talking about Israel plus everybody else that He seals, that He numbers, that He says yes to. Okay? The number 12 has always, from the time the Bible started until the end, right here at the end, the number 12 has always represented the complete number of God's people. In the Old Testament, 12 were 12 tribes. And if there were 12 tribes, you fit somewhere under those 12 tribes. The harlot in uh, the book of uh, Joshua, which... uh, uh, Herman talked about this morning in Sunday school. Even if you're Rahab the harlot, who was a Canaanite, who was under the ban, who, who Moses and Joshua had said, she is under the harem and she deserves to die. You must kill everyone in Jericho. If you read your Bibles carefully, she becomes an ancestor of guess who? Guess who? Guess whose great, 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 great grandmother was Rahab the harlot? Jesus Christ the Lord. If he did Ancestry.com. Wow. There's multiplication. Big, big. Beyond 144,000. That's what verse 9 is talking about. It's symbolic. 12 represents the entire people of God. Always 12. There were 12 apostles. That was the new humanity, the new people of God. And now today you see this number is multiplied times a thousand and times 12 and a thousand. That means all of us too. And each one of us, I don't know when it happened to you. I kind of know when it happened to me. And I I think it happened more than once because I took the seal off a few times. (laughs) You think I'm a great pastor. I'm not. I've taken the seal off and I've thrown it away. And he's had to come back and get that back on there. (laughs) Did you ever have kids and, you know, you you dress them real nice in their dress and ready to go to church, right? And then you walk in the room and what, what's, what's going on there? They're naked. Yeah, <laughs> everything is off. <laughs> or they've put something horrific on you. Yeah, no, I had your bed Sunday best. Okay. And then there's a theological reason. I love this. This just blows your mind. Look at the list. Look at the list. 
There is not a single list in the whole Bible of the 12 tribes of Israel that matches this list. This list is so messed up that scholars have poured over it for years. They have tried to figure out what is John doing with this list. He has butchered the list. John's butchered the list. Because this list is nothing like any list. Ever. Absolutely wonderful and brilliant. Here's what he's doing. Judah, look at your list. Judah is promoted to first place from fourth place. Judah in the list, the original list of the twelve sons of Jacob, Judah was son number four. But he's moved. He's moved up to number one. Where does, what tribe is Jesus from? Number one. Okay. So now Judah's up at the top. But then he does something so crazy and so insane that people have poured over it for years, but I have these books to help. See these guys? And here's what they say. The four sons that come next in your list, the four sons that are there, i got to take time to show you folks. I may not finish with the rest, but this is so important. I want you to see it. Here we go. I hope you see it. First son, Judah. Second son, Reuben, who was the firstborn. Then the next four sons, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. Guess whose kids they were. Anybody want to take a wild guess? Those of you that know your Bibles will be able to guess. Don't say it out loud because you might get it wrong. They were the sons of the slave girls, Zilpah and Bilcha. They were the sons of the concubines. They were the sons, not the regular sons, the sons of the slaves. They were the sons of the outcast women. And they're moved to the top of the list. The four sons of the concubine slaves, Zilpah, Bilha, of Leah, and Rachel, are promoted from the end to positions three through six, which means the outcasts, the slaves, the Gentiles get in, get adopted, become part of the people. Of God. Dan, son Dan, I have a son named Dan, God forgive him. D- the, the, son Dan, Dan is completely eliminated and replaced with Manasseh, the firstborn of Joseph, and Joseph is added to the list because he was faithful and a type of Christ. You have a complete reordering of the list, and what what John is saying and what scholars have known for years, they didn't just discover this, but I had the advantage of reading some great ones, that the list, the ceiling is that you're in. There are not two people of God. There are one people of God. One of the reasons I became a Presbyterian, one of the reasons I became a Calvinist, was not because of the doctrine of election, which is why most of you became Calvinists. It is not because of that. That's way down the list for me. 
The reason I love covenant theology, the reason that it resonates with me, is because I'm an outcast and I got asked to come in. And I love that. I love knowing that I don't have, that I am not a stepchild. That I'm a hundred percent a child of God. That I have a hundred percent of His seal on me. And Dr. Johnson in his commentary says this at the end, Thus the order of the tribes in Revelation symbolizes the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the incorporation of the outcasts, that would be us, and the exclusion of idolaters, that would be Dan, poor Dan, from the covenant community. It's, it's, a, it's a picture, something you're to see. You're in because you are an outcast and idolaters are out. Outcasts in, idolaters out. There is one people. Why are you seeing it? Because God has always had one people. God is not a racist. When He chose Abraham, He told Abraham what? the very first conversation God had with Abraham is, I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. In other words, all people would find refuge in Abraham and his descendants. And they did. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and let me finish because I'm running out of time and I promise not to go over. Listen to how Paul put it. Christ Himself has brought peace to us, uniting Jews and Gentiles. See, in their world, there was only two, in the Jewish world, there's only two people, Jew and everybody else. And one of the reasons the Jews were very upset with Jesus and very upset with Paul was because they went and got the outcasts and brought them in. And, and the Pharisees would go, what are you doing? Why are you letting her touch you? Why are you letting her touch you? And Jesus never took His eyes off of the woman. He, did, he wasn't even looking at Simon. He's looking at the woman. And He says to Simon, Simon's over here, the great Pharisee, and He's looking at the woman and He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. But He never looks at him. He's looking here. And He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. You see this woman? Now all their eyes are on this woman. An outcast. You see this woman? I came in your house. He's not even looking at Simon. See? I came in your house. You didn't, even, you didn't even give me a kiss. You didn't even give me any water for my feet. You didn't, she hasn't stopped cleaning my feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And I tell you, in front of all these religious, the big, the high, and the mighty, all of them, he says this. The thieves and the prostitutes and the sinners... Go into the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Why? Because I put my seal. A seal was a stamp. It was 
ownership is like you go to the, 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 you buy a house, they put a seal, it's your house. Uh, you go to buy a car, you notarize, it's your house, it's your car. It's your, you go adopt a child. And it, those of you that have been adopted or had adoption done, you went before a judge somewhere and someplace they brought out a piece of paper and somewhere on that piece of paper is a seal. And it says, you're mine. And God sealed us and said, you're mine. If we could not make it sure, it would make us miserable. For to be told that such a salvation and such a glory, and yet kept in doubt as to whether they are ours or not, must render us truly wretched. I mean, if we are in doubt, we are wretched. It's horrible to be in doubt. And doubt comes when you've messed up, and that's when you need to know you're loved, yes? Doubt comes when your life is absolutely coming apart at the seams, and that's when you need to know. And people's lives were coming apart in this book of Revelation, and God sealed them. What a poor gospel it must be which leaves the person who believes it still in doubt as to whether or not he's a child of God, an unpardoned unpardoned sinner, till we have found forgiveness, we cannot be happy. We cannot serve gladly or lovingly, but must be in bondage and gloom. Folks, if you're in bondage and gloom, it's because you just don't believe that you have been sealed, that He has put His seal on you. And this whole seventh chapter is telling us we have been sealed. We have come out. In other words, we have come out of great tribulation. We still may go through great tribulation. In fact, I believe we will. And I believe there are places in the world where Christians are, in fact, going through great tribulation. I had a whole story of them for you. You know, since January, over 6,000 Christians have been murdered in Nigeria. They have a contract out. Boko Haram has a contract out on the Archbishop of, uh, of Nigeria. And, and he has been made president of GAFCON. They came into his home. They stole his cattle. They raped and assaulted his wife, brutalized his children, and then went away. And then they came back to get the rest of the cattle the next night. And uh, he wasn't at home, so his neighbor came out with a flashlight. They shot him dead. And that's one little snapshot, folks, of what's going on around this world. Christians are being persecuted. We're not. But out of the great tribulation in God's presence, we are clothed with white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb, worshiping, serving, sheltered. We may go through the trouble, but the judgment is being held back by nothing less than four angels who will not touch the earth until all have been marked. You see, not until all are marked. Our job is to make sure that everybody in our life has been told, you can, you can be forgiven. Someday, You know, the Bible says someday every human being is going to stand before God. The Bible promises that at the end, at the end of the day, end of days, whenever that is, I don't know, whenever it is, everyone's going to stand before God. And everyone will give an account. We're going to get a chance 
to tell God our whole story as if He didn't know. We're going to get a chance to tell Him. And then we're going to be weighed in a balance. I mean, that's real. We're going to be judged for our deeds. And the only difference, the only difference, the only thing that Christianity said is don't go into that courtroom alone. Take Jesus with you. Let Him stand in there for you. Let Him say to God, all His penalties, all His guilt, all His shame, I bore. And the judge will look and say, okay. And then Jesus is going to say, and now Father, that you've forgiven all His sins, I want you to give Him everything He deserves. Or she, everything they deserve. Well, let me ask you, what do you deserve? White robe. Every tear wiped away. He Himself wiping those tears away and saying it's okay. Clothing us with white robes. The only one in heaven that's not going to be wearing a white robe is going to be your Savior because His is splattered in blood. The book of Revelation says it is splattered in blood because He had to go, go press, He had to go into the wine press of God's wrath alone. Isaiah said, by Himself. And the blood of His enemies splashed His coat and now He's covered in blood. We were those enemies. He took our wrath. He went in that wine press alone. And there's no religion in the world that says that. Will you trust Him? I pray you will. I do. Father, help us to trust this Lord, this great God, who at His own expense adopted us into His family and took a great seal and applied it to our lives and said, You are mine forever. Come what may. Come what may. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you forever. Father, please, I I pray that we will have that assurance today and forever, especially when we're in times of trouble. Amen.